Oh! I've been kicking the microphone the last like three sessions and it makes a horrible feedback noise. Oh really? Well it sounds good through my headphones. Can you hear? I can hear you. I think I can hear me too well. Oh lovely. <laughs> Today's idea grave is going to be powered by Korean roasted sea laver. <laughs> laver must be some sort of fancy name for fried seaweed. That's all. Oh, lav yeah, lavier, corn oil, sesame seed oil, nothing else. In honor of the visit of vegan raw Christy Gordon. We're going to have a nice, calm chat after I cleaned up all of that mess from the fucking raccoons downstairs. Get to unwind. Get to relax. How's it going? Going good. How about you? You need to get a little closer to the microphone. Oh, scoot your cool. chair in. Oh, how cool! Is it? Oh yeah, I can hear myself more. That seems like that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, what brings you to Toronto? Well, I was up in Ottawa first for an art show that I had up there, and then I like to come through Toronto afterwards to visit all my friends and family. Aww. Yeah. See your sister. Yep. Exactly. Who else is in the city? Um, some of my friends from my Bachelor of Fine Art that I did. Um. Yeah, some really talented artists. Yeah, Christina Matsula, Aaron Laurie, Kevin Columbus. Other people from the painting Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, totally, totally. So how did your show go in Ottawa? It was good. Yeah, there was a good turnout and um, yeah, lots of support. It's always nice to go up to Ottawa and see everyone. You've been with mm -hmm. that Cube Gallery for quite some time, eh? Yeah, they were one of the first galleries that I ever showed with. I've been showing with them since 2005, actually. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty crazy. That's almost 10 years. I don't understand any part of that world. Like, how does it even work? Well, how it did normally... You meet the curator and stuff? Yeah, like, things normally start out pretty slow. Um, people often, like, um, sort of make the metaphor between, like, the relationship between the gallery and the artist and the relationship, like, relationships, like, interpersonal relationships, like, like especially dating? love yeah, relationships. Mm -hmm. So similarly with, like, dating, you normally start out slow and just kind of date casually for a while and so that's how it works with me and Don Monet at the Cube Gallery. Um, you start out normally in like one or two group shows just you know very space you know in you know lots of space in between the shows mm -hmm. and then you know if the, it starts to go well then eventually they might offer you a solo show and that's what happened for me and and then that went well so we've started doing solo shows every year or two. Do they have uh, do galleries have their own turf or is it kind of a situation you know, in other cities, can you have a gallery in every city and they're cool with that? Or do they expect? Cities are fine. Like, yeah, but normally it's like they want the city. So normally you wouldn't have like two galleries in the same city. But in the early stages of your like dating phase with them, it's okay to sort of do a few group shows at different galleries. And it's, you know, uh, that's fine. And then later when you like get more serious and you're what's called represented by the gallery, then it's kind of like committing to a relationship and then they normally want the whole city. So More that, exclusive. Yeah. And does mm -hmm. it work, you know, if you put together a show, like a Jill Greenberg just had this giant horse show where she did all sorts of horse photographs and she took it on the road. Do galleries ever have like first dibs on certain pieces or do they ever have like exclusive rights over certain pieces or does the show just go the paintings interflow between them there can be lots of different setups for different galleries um yeah early on i made what i think was a mistake and i won't do it again where i did give first refusal to one gallery mm. but i found that that didn't really work because then the other gallery it really wasn't getting a fair deal so i find for me i never do that anymore i always you know i just sort of fit it, figure out what i just try and make an even balance between my galleries and that works a lot better mm -hmm. so that no one gallery is getting first refusal and is getting like all the best ones or yeah. something. And have you um, begun to think in terms of like, do you just, is it just free expression all the time or is there any kind of strategy? Like, do you ever think to yourself, Oh, this would be really good for cube gallery or it's like, Oh, this is more of a metropolitan thing. I'd be better in New York or there can be a bit of that. Like, yeah, like, well, first of all, early on, I made the sort of mistake of sort of overthinking about what might sell and what mm. might not. So I kind of avoid, I do avoid doing that and always paint from my heart. But when I'm trying to decide which painting will go where, where I do kind of, I totally like have a bit of an understanding of what clientele 
is at each gallery. So I do make sort of selections about what would fit their, you know, their in, their collector's interest the most. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that there was any kind of um, visible influence that living in New York City had on on what you were painting and? For sure, I've been gaining a lot of inspiration from um, like street art and like graffiti and um, just like life experiences in New York. And I'm sure I can see that with different um, like residencies that I've done, like the place that you're staying always, even even if it seems subtle later, it's like it's so clear the pl- mm. the place that you're living or doing a residency really affects my work. Yeah. I've been walking around looking at the large graffiti murals that they've painted along the rail path in Toronto. And um, they're they're pretty wild. There's there's definitely like a variety of styles that have started to crop up that are completely unurban, if that makes any sense. That don't have any connection to like your classic spray can twisty lettery graffiti. Like there's a couple of, of very feminine street artists that are are doing paintings that look like from a children's book or whatever on the. Oh, cool! Yeah, it's, it's I'd like to contrast. see those. But yeah, I really like love looking at all the different styles it's like a whole nother um yeah a whole nother art form just like learning the language of like graffiti and you start to see the styles and you at first everything just kind of looks like graffiti or something and then you're you can start to pick out like wow that's really good and you know that one's like similar style but not as good or whatever Mm -hmm. and yeah and just how um they've been able to master the spray cans totally it's it's an aesthetic that is limiting and you can, at first you can kind of look at it and go like, oh, that's a little bit sloppier than I'm used to seeing on the internet or whatever, or, or something that you'd see in a watercolor or a gallery show or whatever. But then you think of the means that it was made and like how difficult it is to control a spray can well. Yeah. It's, it's funny. And it's also doubly interesting that um, it's, it's become part of a tradition. Like, you know, you used to have to do these murals very quickly with the spray cans it was a, a means to an end because you were doing something illegal and you had to run. But even when they're given commissioned murals, they're still using those same tools because it's part of a, a tradition of, of street art, I guess. Yeah, totally. I um, Yeah, I really like, like, well, it's amazing how skilled some people are. Like, I started to get interested in it and I've bought some, you know, a bunch of spray paint and I'm using it in my work now. But I've got a lot to learn about you know, how to get all the techniques that you just take for granted when you see it, like getting thick lines and thin lines. And well, that's one of the main ones. <laughs> it's really hard. Getting little thin lines is mm-hmm. super hard. And there's like all different caps that you can use. So oh, yeah. there's like super fine caps and then there's thick ones. And there's even ones that are sort of like a slit that'll make like kind of a calligraphy-ish type stroke where there's oh, a thick edge crazy. and a thin edge, which is really fancy. And yeah, but yeah, that like immediacy is really amazing how f- just they nail it. Like, and that's part of the style or whatever. Yeah. I bought uh, a spray can uh, a couple of years ago to to paint a puppet that I had made and the cap came separate and I thought it was either to avoid shoplifting or to um as some sort of safety thing but I guess there's multiple caps that you can choose from yeah it's the deal. yeah and like when you're working super big on a mural then the thick caps might be fine but what I was finding is for me I just need the thinnest possible cap mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems like these um like artists who do murals they like the thin ones too so art stores in New York when I went to you know to buy the cap um apparently it's hard to get those really thin caps because people will just buy the whole box you know oh, so I, yeah. when I found one I was like that's great I'll take 20. <laughs> they probably clog no oh that's true too yeah mm-hmm. yeah they've just got a super small hole mm-hmm. yeah was there was there a, a friend or um, a mentor or something that made you more interested or was giving you tips on yeah it started out um, with me like learning some b-girling and b-boying so it's like break dancing or whatever oh, yeah. and that kind of led me into because they're they're into hip-hop so they do the five pillars of hip-hop so that's one of them is the the writing and the like graffiti and so um yeah i started to like study his style of like painting and then asking him some tips about how he does you know at, at first it just looks i sort of took it for granted like oh it's got such a cool style but then when i started to try and use the spray cans myself I realized that he was making something look really simple but it was actually really hard and Mm -hmm. I needed to ask him how he was doing it (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. has your mind I find that when I try a new style there's like this learning curve right that happens where you move into like this this uh, excited frenzy where you're putting down marks and you're learning stuff very very quickly 
and then you get into a, a middle period where you're actually able to condense that stuff into work that looks finished. And yeah. then you, I always, I always find it's interesting, like when you pick up a new style or when you do a completely new technique for something, how it completely changes your worldview. You know, your ideas for future work become completely influenced by that stuff. And you can't totally. really think the way that you did. Yeah, for sure. Four years ago, right? Yeah. Are you getting that yet where you're starting to imagine images and things that are influenced by the graphic or influenced by the the technique that you wouldn't have done before? Yeah, for sure. I think all of my work, like all of my ideas now seem to include like some bit of spray paint and just like combining the materials and not all super um, like urban sort of, not, not like necessarily all the like hip hop style of, you know, writing but um using spray paint and just using the different materials and i did like notice there i used to work in animation and one thing that someone told me once when i was learning how to ink is um this pattern that happens when you're learning something where at first you think you're super awesome at it mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you suddenly think you're like the worst ever mm -hmm. and that seems to be the turning point where you're actually getting better and then it'll right. just creep up on you and all of a sudden you're like pretty good but you don't necessarily think you're the best ever or whatever um, so I can see that happening with like, well, actually with learning b-girling and with like using spray paint. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The same kind of arc. Mm -hmm. There's something about your new work too, that I can imagine, um, it being a bridge to like, did you ever think about doing your own, your own street art with the same kind of connection? Cause there seems to be. You, you see like the street art coming into the portraiture, but I wonder if the portraiture is going to enter into street art next. I mean, I've done some like graffiti around like Canada before. Right now I'm on this expensive US 01 visa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I um, don't really want to break any laws. In well, the it States. doesn't have to be illegal. Like you could yeah, do maybe if I got like art in a place that was commissioned. That would be fun. Yeah. Like I'm imagining some of your, your um, realist portraits. Uh, if you took even what you had now and did that, classic shepherd fairy technique where you kind of print it out on um laser paper and then you know paste it to some wall or whatever it would that would be, be really fun, fun actually <laughs> that would be super fun i find my scales getting a lot larger so some of them could be murals they're just still on canvas mm -hmm. yeah it'd be really fun to get like a commission for a public space mm -hmm. And so you're, where are you headed next? Are you going back to the city? Is yep. I'm um, actually to tomorrow. I'll be flying back to New York. And then you yeah. shows up in Ottawa for another. Um, yeah. Till November 30th. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then the paintings go to New York or do they stay? Some probably will come to New York afterwards. I'm talking with um, Datche Gallery in Soho about doing a solo in March there. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Have you been building up a relationship with them a long time? or? Yeah, similar to the way it went with Cube. It was just slow going at the beginning. You don't want to be too pushy. You know, you just kind of show an interest in them and what they're doing and who they show and, you know, get like, you know, just like actually interest in what they're doing. And then eventually they get, you know, interest in what you're doing and you just build like slowly a relationship. And um, yeah, and that's how it's been going. And I really like working with them and it's going to be exciting to have my first solo show How with proactive them. are gallery curators normally? Do, do the artists normally come to them? Like, do they, are they the epicenter of a lot of parties and things that end in networking? Or is it, is it common for gallery curators to contact somebody on DeviantArt or like online and I reach out and say like, you should be a gallery person. You shouldn't be just an internet person. How does the relationship I bet that's really uncommon. It's mm -hmm. probably most of the time the artist like reaching out, but doing it in a slick way. Like you want to avoid going in on the opening night with your portfolio in hand or something. Mm -hmm. It shows that you don't know anything about what they're doing, you know, like, so um, you want to show that you're like, you have some knowledge about what their life might be like by just doing it casually, you know, but being serious and professional and um sort of keeping them posted about your work for kind of a long period of time because they want to know that you're serious enough that you'll keep painting and that you're, yeah, challenging yourself and growing as an artist before they really commit to taking you on. There's, uh, it's, it's such a funny, um, it seems like such a funny industry because gallery painting is about um, confidence and belief and that abstract idea of market value, like how a painting can be um, perceived to be expensive 
and then it becomes real when somebody's willing to pay for it. Like I heard, um, it's, it's kind of a weak anecdote because I don't remember where I read it or who it was involved. Um, a gallery was trying to get high value for paintings right off the bat by sending paintings for free to a rich collector. And it was under the pretense that this is a gift from the gallery. This is a $40,000 painting. We hope you enjoy it as a, as a a show of our gratitude for all of the patronism you've done all the years. (laughs) And so you have the initial person that puts this up in their house and then immediately hitting the ground, they're telling all their friends that this is a $40,000 painting. So everyone in their network begins to believe that. And then as soon as they're able to, to sell it, to somebody else for 45,000 it's it's already at that tier you know it's it's a, and it's a kind of a funny just psychological i mean that sort of thing can happen where it's sort of artificially inflated or whatever but mm-hmm. most of my experience is just like starting out kind of low and then the way that your prices go up is based on you know the number of shows you've been in and then like eventually publications and museums and then you know, there, and it just sort of builds slowly. Um, certain awards and different markers is sort of points where you would raise your prices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's more what my experience is. But I have heard of, well, maybe I haven't heard of too many stories like that with the artificial inflation. But I guess that's out there for sure. But I think, um, I think with that, those sort of things, yeah, get artificially inflated and then kind of fall <laughs> right because all you yeah. need is one internet story to burst yeah the bubble and then the i mean i'm like, not sure but i think so yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. it reminds me a little bit about how you know certain vintages of wine you know you'll hear about a, a sotheby's bottle of wine from 1927 being auctioned and somebody pays forty thousand dollars for it because it's 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 almost like um like there's been a lot of talk. Um, Seth Godin's been writing about the the placebo effect and the power of it, and his the way he's thinking about it now is is trying to put like a more positive spin. Like traditionally, um, people have thought of the placebo effect as being woo or being um, deceptive or <clears throat> manipulation. And Seth Godin um, is trying to argue that placebo is is one of the most powerful important uh, and human aspects of the world for sure yeah and he has the great line where he goes um in a double blind study um the only difference between a ten dollar bottle of wine and a 250 dollar bottle of wine is the 250 dollars like people can't tell but however yeah, totally because of saying. the placebo yeah. effect if you pay more to you it will taste better for and sure. I feel like that's the case for all artwork is that the story surrounding something is just as valuable as the object itself. That's true for yeah, I know what you mean for sure. Sometimes like I think apparently higher priced paintings can even be easier to sell at a certain point cuz mm-hmm. they seem more valuable or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the other thing that comes to mind a little bit of a separate note with the placebo effect is just the idea of like believing in yourself too and like thinking that you know trying to convince yourself that you're like good enough and that you really can do it and and eventually you sort of you believe in yourself enough to promote yourself well to a gallery and Mm -hmm. sort of fake it till you make it like in the appearance that you make towards a gallery or towards any kind of accomplishment that you want to work with make with your art did you find that there was a a period where you didn't have the self-confidence and there was a transition that happened to build it up again or um well i think i was pretty good at just feeling the fear and doing it anyway and not like excessively exuding the fear Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that was good and eventually the like fear like you know it was really scary when i talked to my very first gallery owner ever um it was like really nerve-wracking i remember stuttering on the phone like with a couple others you know but eventually it just gets more like relaxed and and then you just um get a little bit more of a professional demeanor that sort of says that you believe in yourself to these galleries or to whoever you're trying to like promote your work to yeah because i think that's an important thing i imagine the traveling helps too because you and your sister have lived 
all over the, the place and you've painted in different cities and mentored under a whole lot of different people. Yeah, actually that really is a like important point is the mentoring thing. Um, I think what helped me the most was seeing other artists who were more successful than me and studying like their every move, <laughs> like really studying the way they interact with collectors and the mm -hmm. way they interact with their galleries and the way even they interact with other artists and just totally studying it. And that would give me like reference points for how to deal with like situation, you know, how to deal with galleries, you know, um, like not to be like, so over the top excited to be talking, you know, sort of mm -hmm. to be talking on the level or whatever, you know, and just various things. Cause, um, without any reference point in how to act, you know, in those scenarios or talking to magazine editors or something, you just have no idea. You might be so excited about it that you just don't know how to function in that world. So having other artists that had already like, you know, accomplished those goals and just sort of studying like how they did it and studying how they acted in those situations was really something that helped me. You know, of all the dumb things that you see on Facebook, you know, one out of a hundred you look at it and you'd say, oh, that is kind of profound. My brother, my older brother is um, kind of the Tony Soprano version of me. Like he's a, a big pool playing diamond pinky ring, rich <laughs> recycling kingpin. And um, he posted uh, his, his like life philosophy for kind of tips on how to be successful. Oh, cool. He said that at any point in your life, you should always have three mentors. That's awesome. Regardless of what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that I, I agree with that in that um, there's something funny about how humans influence one another and you pick up on the rhythms of the company you keep. For sure. So if you're hanging out with a lot of people who suffer from terrible self-doubt or aren't in the habit of finishing what they start or are self-destructive you can't help but pick up on those habits. Totally. And when you are surrounded by people who are just in the habit of like constantly shipping really good stuff and being confident and being able to live out loud and honest and expressive and, and uh, you can't help but do the same. And it becomes totally. an arms race almost, right? Like when you have a circle of friends that are constantly making awesome stuff um, you get wrapped up in that whirlwind and can't help but escalate your game, you know? I think you totally hit the nail on the head. That's like exactly how, that's how I started as a painter, actually looking back on it. It was meeting an artist who was already like doing it. And that was the first time that I realized that that was an option, you know? Mm -hmm. And then me and um, his daughter and a couple other artists, we all sort of at the same time got into painting for galleries and then we were motivating each other and you share tips and yeah, exactly. And, and then the other thing is that as you reach each goal along the way, I started to realize that it was really useful to read other artists, CVs, artists that were more accomplished than oh, me yeah. so that it would help with the goal setting. Cause I would want to know how they got to where they are now, you know, and, and what's you, even possible. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so looking at their CVs, I would be able to set like realistic and specific goals about what I, you know, what I wanted to focus on. Um, and that was like, yeah, that was really helpful along with the fact that seeing how other artists like interact with different situations, that was, you know, it's like it, it teaches you how to interact with galleries or interact with collectors or yeah. So there was the two. It's, it's funny how, you know, how like every artist or a lot of artists that have quote unquote made it, there's still this, um, grass is always greener effect where, uh, they don't feel like they still have that a little bit of imposter syndrome that kind of creeps in where they feel like they've cheated the system or like at any point someone's going to go like, aha, we've caught you. You don't really deserve to have a gallery show at such and such a place. Uh, like for instance, we did a, a show at the AGO like uh, last fall. Right. And if you were to tell your parents that they would think it was a big deal. Yeah, that you know, sounds like a big deal. <laughs> like, oh, you know, the AGO, I've heard of that. And totally. that's a place where, you know, legit people go to get together. Totally. But then the reality of it is that the AGO is a public place in Toronto that's aggressively trying to do community outreach and has tried their best to, like, integrate the underground scene into their gallery more often. And they do first Thursday shows where they kind of throw open the doors and there's all sorts of crazy stuff going in there that's not appropriate for the AGO and not at the level of 
historical importance that you associate with the place. Mm, yeah, that's but that's still really cool though. It's yeah. it's cool. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is that like I I think that for me what's what's um what's been surprising about working in uh on the internet and working in this era is that the things that I'm going to be most proud of 10 years from now are the things that seem humble in a way like because they're new they're underground right you don't know what the established institution is going to be yet that's true some yeah some art show that you put together in soho with a bunch of friends that you're working with that have no um that have nothing but street cred can sometimes become legendary 10 years into the future yeah and then other things that you think are supposed to be the sign of being legitimate can be thought of as like being not important anymore like in the long run yeah i totally hear what you're saying yeah that's yeah that's totally cool i mean i found it really helpful to use like looking at other people's cvs to help me get ideas but i also have found um yeah it's kind of two things i mean like sitting sitting down and just really trying to think of what's the most exciting thing for me to do and normally it is similar to a roadmap that other people have like, you know, gone down before or whatever. But yeah, I mean, you want it to be something that really speaks to you for sure. Mm -hmm. And I know, yeah, I totally hear you and like agree about it's exciting to think of like, for sure, doing it in like your own personal way, like a way that's like meaningful for you at the time and not necessarily for some big success, but maybe that'll become even your biggest success yet. The thing that seems just humble and yeah, no, it's an interesting point, totally. I've been I've been trying to figure out a way to categorize the effectiveness of artistic expression by the amount of connection it opens up. And what I mean by that is like try to I'm it's easy when you're doing work on the internet to have industrialized thinking um creep in mm-hmm. where everybody starts to judge the effectiveness of a piece of work by something as simple as like, how many hits did it get on YouTube? How much money did you get paid for that? Right. Like these two <laughs> blank things instead of more, um, to me, like more powerful ideas, like did it move somebody? Was this an important piece of work that helped solidify, um, a political movement that you cared about or, um, did it, did it sum up a, a, a state of mind of what it was like living in Toronto in 2014 and, mm-hmm. you know, in Rosasvale or whatever? Was there something that made this a piece of work that is specific or, you know what I mean? That kind of Actually, totally. It makes me think of something that I hadn't mentioned yet about what you were talking about before about, well, I think what you were starting to get at with like the people that you know, you know, you want the people that are closest to you to be sort of doing something high and inspiring that's that um all like goes together um like basically I hadn't like thought of the or I hadn't mentioned yet the point of like all of the artists being in dialogue through their work you Mm -hmm. know so like our techniques are influencing each other and our themes in our work are influencing other each other and it's all sort of coming out of like our experience with life in you know either in Toronto or in New York I've got actually some influence coming from my artist friends in Toronto and some influence from my um, artist friends in New York. And that's definitely one of like the most exciting things that's probably going on in my work right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that like dialogue between, you know, groups of friends of artists that are all like pushing each other, like technically and conceptually and trying out different things, maybe some psychedelic type of art forms or, you know, street art form, and just bringing it all together. And yeah. It's, it's so interesting, the connection between uh, the work you're doing and the place that it's made in yeah i've always i've always found that um for me my work is always seasonal like in the winter time when things get bleak here i'm in the mood to do artwork that's that's cold and um dark and then the springtime it lightens up again and i want to get out and photograph some trees and things and integrate music video ideas that have that kind of happy influence i'm wondering like do you see yourself ever being settled in a place that would do you think that moving around would be 
essential for for keeping your art alive? Like, do you think that the setting is? Yeah, the I fuel definitely for it? think the setting is. I mean, New York's pretty inspiring. Like, I I'm feeling. You know, settling down into New York, it still gives like a lot of different sort of inspirations. I could go off in any different point. But I have like thought of, um, you know, if I was to settle, say, on like Vancouver Island or something, which I am very tempted to do at times, it's just hard to picture what my work would be like. I mean, would I just start painting like seascapes or something? I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to picture. Sometimes the challenges that life and the city like presents can end up being really good fuel for my work. So a perfect, peaceful life might not be the most, mm-hmm. you know, perfect influence for my work or whatever it might sort of. Yeah, just... it would lead to a lot of serenity. Yeah. With serene images. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I like serenity, but I don't know that that's what my work is really. It more has to do with a kind of balance between some serenity and some, you know, challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that it would be so interesting to build up an artistic version of um, Airbnb where everybody could just do a studio share type of thing where like if you want to come to Toronto you live here and then me and Jessica go live in your apartment in New York City or like Alexis's place in LA or you know blank somebody in Tokyo somebody in London Ilya in London and you just uh, do studio swaps right for a month at a time totally that's what residencies are really I guess Mm -hmm. yeah so residencies are such a useful like they're so um important to artists and so many people do do them like established artists because you're right like different cities will have a huge impact in your work and and at a residency you'll normally be surrounded by curators from that area that you're visiting you know like lots of opportunities to have dialogue with people that are in in that art world and working around other artists. And so it provides like exactly what you're talking about. And it does end up being a huge amount of stimulation that really affects the work. It's one of those terms that I've heard a million times, but I don't really know the logistics of. Is it, is it that Mm -hmm. the gallery is paying for an apartment for somebody to. No residencies are not through galleries. (laughs) They're like, it's like you apply for a residency, um, kind of like you would apply for a competition or, you know, it's like an opportunity that you apply for. And then a lot of the time, like there's a lot in Berlin and there's a lot, there's just a lot of different ones, you know, like I did a three month one in China. And so, and that was actually through my school, the New York Academy of Arts. So schools will often help set them up. Um, and so what basically normally happens, sometimes you pay a little bit, sometimes it's all free, but there'll be, you know, a living space where you can live. And then there's a studio space and normally your studio space will have, you know, some like other maybe other visiting artists that are also part of the residency and often other artists that are from that country, too. So everyone's kind of dialoguing and inspiring each other. And they dump them all in the same area and they shake up the pot. And yes. then they say, like, Let's see what happens. Yeah. And when I get to residencies, I normally am like, oh, boy, I really hope this you know the work that I do I hope it does end up being influenced by my experience here like I really hope so but who knows what's going to (laughs) happen and then by the end it's like so clearly influenced Mm -hmm. like the paintings were just so China when I came back from China or like so Norway when I came back from Norway yeah so So if you were um, speaking to uh, a young artist that was off in the middle of nowhere you would encourage them to to travel a lot? Do you think that that would be beneficial to their work? Yeah, yeah, definitely travel a lot and try and make lots of friends with lots of artists. And yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one of the good reasons to go to college is that it's your first kind of opportunity to meet a whole bunch of people with the same background. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. And a lot of colleges like have residency options, which is a good, I think maybe some residencies might be hard to get into it for, you know, it might be, I don't know for sure all of them, but it's often probably useful to have some college first so that your application looks slick for a residency or something. (laughs) Does New York City still have an artsy neighborhood where the whole block is is painters or something? Um, Well, I mean, there's like different different studio buildings. There's a couple in Brooklyn. um, And then there's like different gallery areas like in Chelsea and in... um, the Lower East Side where my gallery is. And then there's an uptown area where there's, so there's these pockets of gallery, sort of art galleries. And then there's a couple like main artist studios, mostly in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the studio buildings are, I guess, actually really interesting too, as far as almost like a residency. I mean, it's like we, if you live in New York, it's not a residency, but it's that same type of setup where, 
you're working around all these other artists so you're going to be talking to them and you're going to be like influenced by each other and inspired by different things and that you're seeing other people doing so it's it makes like a dialogue but in the work you're using that red i'm using that red red. (laughs) stealing my ideas (laughs) bad neighbor bad artist neighbor (laughs) but then it's like that just happens it's not a big deal (laughs) yeah there's a there's far too much preoccupation with people worrying about influences and stuff i mean the, the hilarious thing is if you try to deliberately copy something, how different it turns out. Yeah, and I mean, for sure. You don't want it to be like a copy, but, you know, everyone's going to be... It's flattering if your work is somehow inspiring someone else. And, you know, it's nice if all... It's good if the work is sort of in, like, communicating with other people's work. There was a funny um, aspect of going to Sheridan because the studying illustration, the teachers are adamant that everybody come up with their own quote-unquote style Mm -hmm. and what was hilarious is um there was a couple of factions that were going on in 2004 when i was there where there was the street art kids that were into banksy and shepherd fairy and stuff like that and all they wanted to do was spray paint art and the teachers poo-pooed that because they wanted people to work in like oils or acrylic Mm -hmm. right they didn't like the aesthetic of 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 spray paint and then there was the the kids that were on like the more joe soren side of things that were really influenced by mark ryden and joe certain and the la artists and they got poo-pooed because their work was too similar to mark ryden and what was amazing to see is after sheridan ended and there was no longer the restraint that the teachers were putting on them how those children of those those two influences went off and started to kind of you see how a scene forms you know and how you end up like having this momentum and this 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 power that comes from people having a like mind and being influenced by one another yeah and how that's very uh, much more powerful than being some lone illustrator who has this oddball style that's not like anybody else's and also therefore they're not part of a community that is like self-supportive totally so it's harder to do group shows and it's harder to put together a book that has a like-minded thing and totally there's all sorts of um benefits that come from yeah no i think that's like exactly right and i've yeah experienced the same thing like with my undergrad in toronto like, you know, we were all doing sort of different things and just experimenting in school, but now we've gotten out of school and we're all still doing the paintings and getting into galleries and doing, you know, and, and inspired by each other and really like, diff- it's all really different, but I can see everyone being inspired by each other and everyone, like my friends in Toronto, they're showing together and the work is cohesive in it and they're help- it helps each other too. Like if someone's curating a show, they'll probably have their other friends in it and, you know, it kind of helps build everyone all together and, and the fans and the work is they start to multiply because if you like this person then you also like this person yeah for sure and the yeah. fan has an opportunity to not just be a fan of the one thing but to start building an entire lifestyle around totally. all these different artists that are providing the fashion that fits with the movement and the music that fits with the movement and totally you know, it's crazy yeah no totally yeah i think that um that would, if I was to contribute any lecture to a university kind of curriculum, it would be along those lines, how heroes can be very important to young artists and how you can end up with a more sustainable and powerful scene when people are copying one another, basically. Yeah, no, I think that's totally... Like what I've noticed too. And like in New York, I mean, and it just happens naturally, but it's like, that's well stated what does happen like naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how has um, realism come back in such a strong way? It seemed like um, when I was in college, it was the furthest thing from the, the, the instructor's minds. Like they, it, the idea was like, oh, you go to life drawing as kind of a way to calibrate your hand, but you'll never make any money like painting 
realistic things or whatever. That's just an exercise. Real artists do abstract or like, <laughs> you know, pen and ink scribbled cartoons or whatever. It's, it's funny how things have come back full circle. Totally. And it probably happened in a similar type of way to what you were just describing. Um, I know artists that were around like, you know, I don't know, 50 years ago, or I don't know exactly when, but, um, you know, and they were like the oddballs out doing realism. And now gradually it's like become, there's more and more now there's like tons of it. There's better, there's more training opportunities. So the skill level's getting really high and, and people are starting to do really interesting things with it. And what I'm noticing is like more blending between like, you know, traditional technical, like the skills of realism with sort of more contemporary, like themes in the realist work. And that's an exciting development that I'm seeing a lot of in, well, everywhere and definitely in New York where I'm living. Mm -hmm. And do you think that um, if you were, you know, what would be your message to younger painters right now about like kind of both the, the state of the work now and where you think it's headed? Like, do you, can you anticipate what the atmosphere is going to be and what it is now? I mean, yeah, it's like hard to, it always seems like maybe the young artists can just always, they should, everyone should always just like do what they're drawn to and that's what mm -hmm. creates, you know, whatever is supposed to happen next or whatever. But right now, I mean, I'm really excited by all the like opportunities to actually study traditional techniques that are out there that didn't used to be there. And it's exciting for young artists to be able to get those skills that enables them to do, you know, whatever they want from there. It can be expressive or, you know, it can really go off on a different tangent, but, you know, like understanding proportion and understanding structure. And then if you want going from there. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's like an exciting opportunity that wasn't always around more of the ATAs in sort of classical, um, academies that are cropping up mm -hmm. that just really teach like anatomy and structure and really solid foundational skills. Yeah. Um, cause some of the, you know, colleges, um, like the skill, uh, the like training skill wise or whatever is, um, it's not quite as sol It's not as focused on solid, you know, solid, like foundational skills. It's, I really love the, you know, opportunity to get more expressive your, with, with um, your work in some mm -hmm. of the colleges. And that's, um, yeah, that's one thing that I really gained at my Bachelor of Fine Art was, you know, an opportunity to play around with the realist techniques that I had already learned and then from there go off and get really expressive and then eventually bring the two together. But it is sort of worth understanding the um, strengths of the two. Yeah. yeah. Is, when you're trying to be more expressive with realism, is that just an attitude that you're bringing to the session when you start painting or is there? Well, just like that... letting the paint go, you know, maybe using larger brushes, just sort of letting things, maybe drips, maybe, you know, just like letting the paint do its thing. And, mm. and, and a lot of that can come from watching other artists try things and just letting it go. Cause with like the really traditional realism, you'll be, really controlling every little thing you know and so then I mean every of course everyone should do whatever <laughs> whatever they're drawn to do or whatever but um yeah for me it was I first learned like really traditional sort of skills and I really liked that and then it was hard at first to get into the more like expressive stuff it felt mm. really scary and crazy <laughs> um but then I yeah I was really glad that I really delved into that and then eventually the two came together and they're still coming together that's yeah it almost reminds me of jazz how people yeah. you know they learn get to classical training yeah. and scales and things and then the the jazz is all about just going completely crazy and for sure totally things hang yeah it's such a funny thing to remember like when i was in college i was totally in line with the way my instructors were thinking where of course you would you want to do something illustrative or um, expressive and of course realism is boring and uh, <laughs> right. staid and uh, there's nothing more to add to it but the thing that's that's interesting is when I started getting into photography as part of um, filmmaking you realize that really what's going on is that every artist is you're part of a storytelling you're part of a, a, a conversation that's going on about what the world is and how it feels to be a human at a certain time. Yeah. And if you look at something like 
um, Jill Greenberg's horse show that I brought up, the cynical uh, person could look at that and go, oh, they're just photos of horses. I've seen a horse before. National Geographic does just as good a photography. Um, what is this adding? And then you spend more time with the work and you learn more about Greenberg herself and you start to see this conversation um, about feminism and about the relationship between women and horses and how these horses are, from a certain point of view, these androgynous kind of creatures with like beautiful flowing hair, but they're also muscular and powerful and it's like a matriarchal society and all of these questions are kind of raised by looking at the work that you wouldn't be able to arrive at if it was a painting of a horse instead or an expressive painting of a horse instead of a, a highly rendered piece of artwork that literally is a horse right I mean? yeah like the indexical quality of the photograph or whatever mm-hmm. yeah yeah no that's interesting and um i don't know it just brings to mind like that yeah every every we definitely have to be careful of like ever thinking that any art form isn't, you know, like if we thought that at a certain point realism was dead and everything had be done well, that's probably a perfect um, time to realize that's probably going to change very soon. And it's right. like, so same with, um, I don't know, as we move back into like realism, or I mean, that's the direction I've been going. Um, it makes me want to also stay open to like abstract, you know, and, just keep an open mind about all the different art forms. Do you find that um, now that you've gotten a certain level of uh, establishment, there's uh, a pressure that comes to conform or to do the same thing over and over again? Or there- like, I, I'm torn between the two because I I obviously see people who have hit upon a quote-unquote style that you can imagine can replicate forever and ever. It's like, oh, okay, I see where they're going with this. Now the monkey is on a tricycle. Now the monkey's climbing a building. Now the monkey's in a plane. And I love it. It's like, yeah, I, I want more of that monkey doing things. That's your your thing, and there's a lot of... It's a, it's a deep well that you're drawing from. But on the other hand, um, you look at artists like... Um, McCarthy right like guys that have gone into mixed media and the the vibrancy of a show that you have absolutely no idea what to expect where they might do sculpture they might do some performance art they might do some screen printing they might do this and but it's all coming from a headspace that's that's consistent totally like to me I feel like I'm much more on that side of things where I don't want to be encumbered right yeah yeah me too i mean there is like an idea out there that i mean and it's um a valid idea and it's one that's like prevalent that you know an artist should have a recognizable style eventually and um and stick with it and there's a bit of a pressure to have that but um i've kind of resisted i think there everything that an artist does will event you know it'll sort of have it does have a consistency Mm -hmm. to it maybe it's not as screamingly apparent as if someone's always, you know, monkey here, monkey there, you know, all the same thing, all the same time, you know, but I think everything totally does have a unity to it that a certain artist touches, at least hopefully. Um, but I, for me, I've really resisted getting too tied down to one style because, um, like I really need to keep my art vital and Mm -hmm. there's really no way I can do that if I'm not, just open to changing it and open to, you know, growing in whatever direction I need to. And I think that that, I mean, the art world is growing like artists who just, they were really good a few years ago and they're doing the exact same thing and their style is so recognizable, but it actually becomes like, that's so 2003. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is in my mind. I don't really know what the actual status of the answer for this would be but I mean that's what I end up seeing is like unless the artist is growing with the dialogue of the art that's growing then um then it just starts to seem almost like outdated at a certain point or something but also what you mentioned about artists using different media and you know I do see a lot more of that and I think that's and it it really brings 
home the idea that a lot of like the artist's ideas like really come through so an artist who paints and sculpts and this and they're just exploring the same theme and they're still exploring yeah the same interests like through these different mediums and I think that's exciting too I like that I liked I liked what you said about how an artist can't help but have the fingerprints of their personality on even if they decide to change mediums it reminds me kind of when Radiohead released Kid A at the time people thought that it was a radical departure and they go you know where's this is so different than okay computer and they had like this incredible um successful album isn't it brave that they they've broken away and done something radically different and then you know 12 years 14 years on however long it is i think it's 13 years now um you look at it the two albums together and what they've done since and it makes perfect sense you go oh that's just that's just what they did or how beatles records all kind of hang together even though there's a crazy experimentation track to track all the way across the career it's like the you almost like by having the the bravery and giving yourself the permission to be schizophrenic you end up having a career that's schizophrenic and people just like that's what they do they they change and they they have a vibrancy and that you never would expect and they're not repeating themselves you know totally and another thing that came to mind is that like i mean we're all sort of looking for our artistic voice sort of thing and Mm -hmm. what i've heard a lot and what i found is that eventually it's like all the different um you know side experimentations that you've done in your work that maybe seemed really all sorts of different like angles at the time eventually they kind of all come together you know Mm. so maybe like looking into the future you'll be it's like you can see well i wasn't really so far off now that i'm doing this everything this different thing and this different thing they're both related to this thing that i'm doing now so it kind of comes together a little bit in the end too i had that's such a funny idea when you look at your life and you kind of realize that every single decision that you made was leading to this point and how even the the abstract things that were a pain in the ass it's like oh i had to move to mimico and then you know so and so stole all my money so i had to get this job and you look back and you go like even that stuff was important totally. that let, made me learn this this and this and then totally and that's so comforting to realize <laughs> yeah and all the more reason to just fully go into the like directions that you're interested in cuz they're pulling you somewhere that you need to go <laughs> Did you ever see that Neil Gaiman commencement speech that he did? Oh, yeah, I did. I forget, like, every, you know, I don't remember every word or anything, but I remember it being, like, amazing and inspiring. (laughs) I liked the way he summed up the closing segment of it. He just kept on rephrasing the, um, he just kept on repeating the line, make make good art, make better art. Mm. He's like, "If, if you have a setback, make better art. If, you know, you have a tragedy, make better art. Yeah, you know, over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think that the, for me, what's motivating is the idea that like, you know, I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, but there's a great Kurt Vonnegut line where he's he's speaking at a commencement address and um, he basically says that everybody has as part of an exercise regardless of whether they're interested in art or not should go home and write themselves a poem and uh, try to make something true and honest and from the heart and be very careful about your word choice and try to make it as good as you possibly can and then once you you think you're finished crumble it up and throw it in the garbage because art is not an occupation it's something that you do as an exercise to make your soul grow I can totally see that. And I feel like the next I feel like this the next stage of art I feel like we have to shake off the 20th century thinking where we try to turn everything into a commodity mm-hmm. and that we try to like try to put a value on all of our stuff and instead try to embrace a bit of like the martial arts spirit where we understand that making things and making artwork is good for your your soul. And that regardless of material wealth that might come from it or career opportunities, it's good for you to do it. Totally. Yeah, totally. And to do it from the heart. Like, well, yeah, I guess that ties in if you're not worried about like the 
commercial value or whatever, then you're freed up. So yeah, either way, it's good to just free yourself up to always work from the heart. Yeah. And yeah, I like what you said about writing the poem and just making it as true as you can. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point. Just like trying to figure out what is true at that moment and how you can express that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems to tie in. There's there's a lot of um, ideas online about mindfulness lately, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a backlash, I guess, against the internet, which is a, kind of an impulse. The internet can take you into a lot of directions that are not aware of like your time and place and what's going on with with Christy Gordon in 2014 in New York City. You know what I mean? Yep, totally. And I think that. There's something interesting about mindfulness and combining that with art that I think is is kind of powerful. Yeah, yeah, that brings up a couple of things. Like I, um, I also have been like I'm sort of into uh, you know the law of attraction and the power of thought and thinking positive and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I've been thinking more about is just yeah, kind of tying in with mindfulness, but just being really truthful to myself about what I'm feeling and not trying to like change it to be something more positive or you know just like really going into what I'm feeling and for me art a lot of the time has been really useful at that like especially if there's been like challenging times Mm -hmm. I'll just kind of paint my way through it and sort of go right into the feeling for a while and you know things will get better or whatever but the art's like a good vehicle for going into it or if you know it can be positive things too it's not always like negative but yeah just the total like honesty of the reality of the time you know yeah yeah and the other thing that came to mind is like the discipline of art like you so you were talking about mindfulness and the sort of scattered sort of quality that um the internet can bring to our focus and i really enjoy like the discipline of painting and just mm-hmm. and I, I mean some of my paintings are tighter and more realist and have some looser more abstract elements but just sort of this continuous discipline of just working away on something and being focused and continuing with it. And, you know, it's just a little bit different from the scattered sort of, um, yeah, lots of distractions and that that sort of lifestyle that occurs with the internet and, you know, magazines and TV and it's all, yeah. Meditative almost. Yeah. I wonder if they did a CAT scan of somebody's brain when they're doing a painting, if it would be similar to transcendental meditation. I wonder... Yeah, probably. <laughs> I've always found it strange that you can sit and do visual art and listen to somebody's podcast or listen to a lecture and it's using completely different parts of your brains. Like you can be completely focused on the visual art, but also completely focused on this thing that you're learning and yeah. the two don't conflict. Yeah. Um, I heard from a teacher once that like the body knows like what to do with painting. So mm. sometimes, and that's after so many hours of painting, maybe when you're first learning, you have to put in the hours to get the muscle memory. But eventually, um, what was really useful for me is to not try and like over intellectualize how I'm going to like resolve aspects of a painting, but just yeah. sit down and just start working on it. And the body would know what to do, you know? So yeah, I can listen to podcasts and things like that while painting. And they do take different different parts of my brain (laughs) actually i know someone else though who um can only listen to music you can't listen to Mm. talking (laughs) it gets distracting yeah there was a if you watch uh simon shama's the power of art there's a section in it where they talk about mark rothko's rothko's uh background yeah and when during the depression he was working as a school teacher and he used to tell the kids that painting should be as natural as singing and his kind of theory about it was that there's almost you almost learn to not be able to paint as you age and it's it's a funny kind of joke when somebody looks at an expressive painting they go like oh my kid could have done that and you go like that's probably true because your your child is probably more in touch with what it is to be an expressive human they haven't un- they haven't learned to be a repressed totally cog in a an industrial system yet yeah, totally. And I think that everyone's got a creative like side. It's, you know, like really like actually I think everyone's an artist. It's just how much we were encouraged by our society or by our family or whatever or discouraged. Um yeah, yeah, definitely. And that yeah, that sort of like brings to mind what you're talking about before about just the value of doing art. Like I think it is really good for 
people to do bad art, do whatever, just make some art, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because just like the people running in the Boston Marathon at all different skill levels, it's it's good for the people that are doing it. Yeah. And I think that that's a good message to come from established artists too, because we're not blameless, right? Like artists, it's, working artists are are probably the biggest villains when it comes to dissuading other people from doing work. You know, like there's there's kind of a, a prejudiceness against the amateur and the person who's like, you know, you have no business. There's too many painters. There's too many illustrators in the economy right now. You can't make a buck at it. Yeah, there's stuff. probably like some people that are like that, but then some people that just would be, yeah, a little bit, well, more, yeah, there's definitely like a vein more like me that just thinks like everyone should, you know, pursue their creative side and and for me, it's been useful to, like, allow myself to make bad art, too, because mm-hmm. you can get really, like, frozen. And it's, you know, it's hard to experiment if you're worried about it being good all the time. So it was really useful for me to be like, all right, I'm going to paint the worst painting ever today, <laughs> you know? And then maybe it turns out to be good. Who knows? And and what is bad art anyways? You know, just, yeah. <laughs> Impossible to tell. Yeah. I mean, as soon as they you got into, like, the outsider art and Daniel Johnson and, and people who don't have any of attachment to classical training and you see that that work can be so punk and vibrant yeah and it's funny some of my favorite and work now surprising yeah. Yeah. yeah i've always been jealous of, the, of that side of it because like i came up going through school where i was a totally boring artist when i was in high school you know where you you're you're you've got such a pickle up your butt about realism and like trying to do like perfect chiaroscuro shading and stuff yeah. like that and i remember kids in my art class where the teachers would be patting me on the head because like I was a quote unquote following the rules and doing what you're supposed to do at that stage. And I had um, totally crazy friends in my class that only were interested in drawing Calvin and Hobbes comics, doing uh, graffiti art and doing tattoo stuff. And they all got D's in their classes because that's not the assignment or whatever. Yeah. And, how much of a buzzkill is that? Like I yeah. learned way more from those kids I went to school with than I did from my teachers, right? Like, there's yeah, no, I think it's so dangerous when high school art teachers like tell a student that they're not good at art. Like I've heard stories about that and then the people just, that's where it starts. They just decide, oh, I'm not good at, you know, I'm actually not a good artist. I just don't have it. <laughs> and they just stop painting, <laughs> you know, and then they take up some other, maybe they find some other creative vein, but they're just like, no, it's like, it's a fact. I'm a bad artist. But it's like, actually, your teacher was a bad teacher. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you think about how they're interested in the commercial side of things where you yeah. might actually be able to make a living. Yeah. And like, are they even teaching? Like, are the, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, but also coming out of school was like the most creative, you know, like I really learned a lot at both of the schools that I went to and I'm so glad that I did both of them, but you do end up kind of really worried about what your teachers will think and stuff. So my work, I became much happier with it after I finished all my schooling and was able to just stop worrying about that and just actually start painting anything that I wanted. And mm. Yeah. I had a great life drawing teacher in third year of Sheridan named Stan Hughes. And in his opening monologue, he's basically like, you all have A's, so relax and try to make cool stuff. The only thing that can happen at this point that you can screw up your A is if you don't show up, if you don't work hard, if you don't progress and try things, yada, 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 I'll be disappointed. And then your grade will come down. That is a good art teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's good to like produce a lot or, you know, or produce maybe you're a slow worker and so then maybe it's not a lot but just to work at it a lot that's good and but definitely to be able yeah just feel confident that you can explore the area that you want is important Mm -hmm. and also if you're interested in realism it's important to have some actual training because i've heard well you know because i've heard of people who just maybe in high school there was the guy who's just naturally better at realism and they got like good grades and then the person who just naturally wasn't you know didn't really have it but the teacher wasn't teaching them anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and then they were like told that they're just not good at it it's Mm -hmm. like if that was your high school art teacher they could have just taught you anything you know (laughs) or tried to figure out what it is about the assignment that's not speaking to you you well yeah yeah because i don't think that everyone has to do realism but the thing about like 
realism as I've seen lots of people learn it. Like it can be right. taught, you know, it's not like you just have the knack or you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what we're, how we're doing for time. Yeah, me too. Yeah, this is probably going to be a mini-sode because Jessica Ray Gordon is making us dinner right now and Christy has to shove off <laughs> to, um, I don't know where you're going. What's more important than being here right now? Oh my God, 726. 726. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say you had to leave at 730? Um, I can push it back a little bit, but yeah, we should <laughs> Good. All right. Did you want to uh, give your Twitter handle or anything like that if uh, people are interested in uh, looking at your portfolio? and Yeah. Um, gee, I forget my Twitter. I think it's just Christy Gordon, but also I'm on Instagram and it's Christy Gordon, K-R-I-S-T-Y-G-O-R-D-O-N-I-I, like Christy Gordon the second. Whoa. Yeah. And then there's Classy. my website, which has a link to all my different things and that's just christygordon.com. So K-R-I-S-T-Y-G-O-R-D-O-N. And you have to be in the Ottawa area. Yeah, there's a show on right now until November 30th at Cube Gallery, which is at 1285 Wellington Street West. Gnarly. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for interviewing me, Jessica. This is, <laughs> I can't wait to eat all of that boiling teff that <laughs> Jessica Gordon's been making. And I don't know what other surprises are out there, but <laughs> I'm sure nothing died. <laughs> <laughs> that we can be sure of. <laughs> right on. Take care. Good night, everybody.